The more we can cultivate curiosity and compassion towards ourselves, the more we can heal our wounds. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. How is it going? For any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I'm a total shit show. I'm an adult child. And I'm also a recovering alcoholic who, God willing, tomorrow, if you're listening to this shit on the day that it actually drops, so that would be uh, September 13th, 2023, if I don't screw it all up in the next few hours, <laughs> the, the whole world really should just thank me for being sober. And if you don't believe me, Go listen to the fourth up. Ep- my fourth episode is where I go into my my drinking career. It was short. It was a short seven year career, but it was a strong seven year career. <laughs> um, also, for any new listeners, so the 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 way that I start off the podcast, the first several episodes go into my story. And so I highly recommend that you go listen to those episodes because I think it'll make for a more um, a more pleasurable listening experience for your ears. And so I was just sitting here reflecting on the past 14 years. Had I known that I was going to be an even more pain at nine years sober than I was uh, when I first got sober? And I'm not trying to I hope that's not swaying anybody from <laughs> from getting sober. But had I known that, I don't know if I would have stayed sober or gotten sober to begin with. But thank God I did, right? Or you wouldn't be listening to my voice now. But I was just thinking about, especially from listening to the interview that you all will get to hear shortly when I shut the hell up, where I touch upon this, but just how my perspective on my drinking and my alcohol my alcoholism has just changed so much through my adult child journey. I always knew alcohol was a symptom, but I now view my alcoholism as a symptom to my underlying childhood trauma. Now mind you, I don't think that if I I don't think that oh, heal your trauma and, and you can drink. I definitely know that I can't. You know one reason why I know that? Because I have no desire, absolutely no desire to have a drink. I hear people say that, like people in recovery. They're like, oh yeah, I really just wish I could have a drink. And I'm like, why would you want to do that? <laughs> I want to have 25 drinks. No, I know I can't drink and I'm an alcoholic through and through, but I now really view my alcoholism and my addiction as a way to escape that pain of my childhood. The pain of separation anxiety, that fear of abandonment. Once I got my hands on, once I was intoxicated under the influence, whatever you want to call it, for the first time, my goal in life was to be intoxicated as much as I possibly could. And boy, did I go to some great lengths to do so. And I really feel like for those of us that are, 
you know, teenage alcoholics and addicts. Boy, do we go to great lengths to get what we need to get. And I sure did. But as they, the expression is, you know, drinking's fun, then it's fun with problems, and then it's just problems. And it really did become problems for me rather quickly. Uh, and so I just feel so incredibly grateful that I was able to get sober. Because as we all know, a lot of people, most people don't. So thanks for being part of my journey, truly. So honored that you guys listen to me speak every week. I still, I think I said in the very end of my first episode, I'm like, I can't believe that you guys just listened to my voice for the last 40 minutes. And what are we on? We're on like episode 126. You know, I was initially planning to do like, I don't know, eight, 10 episodes. And and here we are, folks, we're still here. So today we are diving deep with Terry Baranski. So he is an internal family systems practitioner. And this conversation just really fed my soul. It was super easy to talk to. And this is a topic that I've been um, wanting to dive into for quite some time. So for those of y'all who aren't familiar, um, internal family systems is a a therapeutic approach that focuses on understanding and healing different internal parts within our psyche. So according to IFS, which was founded by Dick Schwartz, and our guest today will describe this better than I am about to now, but I just wanted to give you a little a little knowledge to take into the episode. But so basically, according to IFS, you know, people have different parts of themselves that represent various emotions, beliefs, experiences. And what often happens is that these parts can sometimes conflict with each other, leading to internal struggles. And so the goal of IFS therapy is to help develop a compassionate relationship with these internal parts. And so I didn't know that we were actually going to do this when I started the interview with him. But one of the questions I asked him was like, so take me through a hypothetical situation of doing an IFS session with one of your clients. And I turned into the client and I think I'm actually going to look to see uh, if they are if there are any IFS practitioners within my area that I could potentially work with. So let's get the damn show on the road, shall we? But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show, which is the hot spot to be for adult children. So this is my online support community where I host weekly Zoom support groups where you get access to a ton of really rad, really cool shit shows who are doing the damn work to heal. I know you're out there, there you've been wanting to join and you haven't because I just had somebody today say that in a group and I know that there are hundreds more of you out there. As I say, this is relational trauma. We heal this shit in safe relationships. This is the place where you can do so with some really cool people who also laugh. If you're looking for a support community that is also fun, where we learn to laugh at ourselves, uh, learn to find humor in our stories, I think that that's so important. 
Well, then look no further than the damn shit show. So check out the link in the show notes and do the damn thing next. Give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at Adult Child Pod. And last but not least, please, whatever you do, give me a damn five-star review on Apple, on Spotify. Reviews really help people to find the show, okay? So if you don't give me a damn review, well, do you really want that that weight on your shoulder of, you know, being partially responsible for a struggling adult child not finding the pod? I'm kidding, but not really. Love you. Thanks. The truth of the matter, my dear shit shows, is that there is a huge overlap in those of us who grew up in a dysfunctional family and those of us who are suffering from ADHD. I myself got diagnosed with ADHD about a year ago, and getting this diagnosis and treating this diagnosis has made such a difference in my productivity and getting shit done. Now, let me tell you about Done. Done is an online ADHD care platform where you can get all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Done for just $79 a month and pharmacy copays as low as $0. Visit get.donefirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that is get.donefirst.com slash podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. All right, y'all. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce Terry Baranski, an IFS practitioner. Pleasure to be here, Andrea. Thank you so much. So I was looking at your website and you talk about this career shift. But the one thing you don't mention is what is the personal backstory connection to this? Because I'm assuming you weren't just like had an easy, breezy, beautiful cover girl upbringing. Oh, well, no, yeah, I'm not, you know, I, I talk about trauma being on a spectrum and I say we're all on it somewhere. And for me, it's mostly the, the covert stuff, what I call, you know, covert, which is not the abuse or the explicit stuff like that. But yeah, just misattuned parents who were doing their best, but just were young and just didn't know, you know, and so many of us fall into that category. What was your experience in that unfolding, like unfolding that acknowledgement? Well, that was relatively recent. So I worked in IT for the longest time out of college, very left brain. I was pretty shut down emotionally. So many guys are. And to me, that was just normal, right? So, okay, this is just the way it is, right? And then when I fell, you know, four or five years ago, I just kind of fell into this world of trauma and discovered Gabor Mate. And I was like, wow, this makes so much sense. This explains everything that was defying explanation before about myself, about others, about society in the world. And then I was able to start peeling back, oh, okay, this is why, so this is why I'm numb, right? Because I was raised in this kind of environment where certain emotions are not welcome. And so we cope in a very intelligent fashion. What do we do? We shut them down, right? And we just kind of go through in a very monotone kind of way through life. So that, so the self-discovery piece was a huge part of that, obviously, and the self-healing piece and the self-work. And then just expanding that now to everyone in the new career is, is pretty exciting. That is awesome. I went from accounting to podcasting. You went from (laughs) IT to IFS. (laughs) Right. Nice. So, but talk about how did you stumble upon like Gabor Mate? Like what was that experience of landing into that stuff? 
Yeah, you know, I used to like when, when I used to hear people say things like the universe has a plan and yada yada. I used to scoff. No, bullshit. At it. Yeah, but this is one where like I just randomly on YouTube it came up as a suggested video. It was a little three minute clip of him talking about what to do when a child tantrums, mm. which is basically you do the opposite of what most American parents do, right? And it was so fascinating because I'm like, yeah, this resonates. And I'd already had a background. I'd studied hunter-gatherer cultures just out of curiosity, like the ones that were studied like 100 years ago before they were modernized, how they raised kids, how they did everything, you know, how they slept, how they hunted. Mm -hmm. and, and so it really it aligned with that perfectly because the thing that fascinated these anthropologists so much was how happy the kids were, yeah. right? And how they didn't tantrum, like they're, and like when they're young, they're always held and like all these principles now that we're just now we've gotten away from and now we're getting back into. Slowly but surely, they're breastfeeding for a long time, like all these things that we evolved. So anyway, it just really resonated with what I studied there, and I just got hooked. Like I was just, then I started reading everything, watching everything, and through him, I discovered these other people in the world of trauma, Thomas Hubel and Esther Perel and all these rock stars and Dick Schwartz, and it just, you know, I really have been into it ever since. It's just endlessly fascinating. Were you aware that you were emotionally cut off, numb? Minimally. Like if you'd asked me it on a multiple choice test, I probably would have said yes, but I, I had no idea of why or what the ramifications of that are. Because again, it's just normal when we adapt in these ways. So we may know it intellectually, but in terms of holistically what that means, you know, it, it's hard to grasp until you really start digging into it. Was there a particular like aha moment or something that you read or like what was it like a major connecting the dots? Yeah, there have been so many. It's hard to, I, I, I don't remember the first time I read numbing being a trauma response you know not because thomas hubel talks a lot about that so it might have been him but that that was that was a big click in terms of oh yeah now that that really resonates with what i've always experienced so i i know that was huge for me and i started digging into that a lot and and that's been a part of the journey for sure and then how did you stumble upon ifs ifs i discovered gabor had done an interview with dick schwartz and it that's another thing that just immediately when i started hearing the ifs perspective on the mind which is so very different than in the West, in particular, how we view it. It just immediately, it's like, oh yeah, this makes so much sense. And it explains so much that is otherwise really, really difficult to explain. So it, that's another thing where as soon as I heard it, I started getting his books and digging deeply, more and more deeply into it. And eventually it became clear that, oh, this is a new career calling, which I didn't know at first, right? But then everything just fit in to place and here we are. What have conversations looked like with your parents? Yeah, minimal, because this is not something that I think it's in their best interest to dig through. They're aware of the career change. They're very supportive. We get along great now. They're wonderful. I have a five-year-old girl, and they're amazing grandparents, and she loves going up there to see them. So yeah, I'm not rocking the boat on that one, but they, they were as amazed as anyone when I told them, yeah, I'm not, I'm going to switch from IT to, you know, mental health, <laughs> like, you know, but they're on it. They're on board. Yeah, I would think that there's probably not a ton of, this is a less common career shift. I would think so. Yeah. And yeah. yours too. So. Yeah, I agree. So I really want to dive deep into this because it isn't something that I've touched upon too much in the show. And I know it's like a super common and effective modality for adult children. So where do we want to start? Where do we want to like set the stage? Yeah, it's always interesting trying to intro this. I can give an overview of how IFS views the mind, if, if you think. And then we, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, we can dig in from there. So I think that fundamentally, the way we normally look at the mind in the West is that it's a single thing. You know, we, we refer to I, we say me as if we're a single 
entity. And that's very convenient semantically, right? So I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't do that. But we also know, on the other hand, that we often have conflicting opinions mm-hmm. on things, particularly when there's a big decision, we'll waver back mm-hmm. and forth. And at any given moment, well, there's two sides to the argument that we're aware of, and they're both in our heads. We also very frequently see other people and in ourselves where a person will say something and then do something else. And I'm not talking about when people are lying. I mean, we will say one thing, we'll, we'll be genuine at the time when we say it, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. Like I'm going to stop drinking. Yeah. And then we do something else. Absolutely. Right. And so clearly there are conflicting processes mm-hmm. at work there, right? There's a desire to either do something or stop doing something. And then it goes a different direction, right? So when we start digging into just these very common things that we've all experienced in different ways, it's like, oh yeah, there are multiple processes at work in the mind. And, we, and that's how we experience ourselves. I, I think a lot of times we just don't have the language for it in this culture. So what IFS believes fundamentally about the mind is that it consists of parts and parts in this context are actual subpersonalities in there. So it's more than just, oh, I have an angry part or I have a sad part. So it takes this notion of the inner child and goes a little further into inner children. Mm-hmm. There's always more than one. And so when we look at mental health, right, so something like an addiction, and we can get into addictions, but it's a very intelligent coping response to trauma. And so in the IFS perspective, there's a part that's driving that behavior, a part of us that thinks that in order for us to survive, we have that addiction has to be there. And very frequently, that's the case because the pain is so strong and the addiction is, it's more than a distraction. It's a full out coping strategy to manage the pain that's there, that if without the addiction, the pain would overwhelm the system. So in the IFS perspective, there are parts that are carrying that pain that are the inner children. And then there's other parts over top of them that we call protectors that are protecting the little ones from getting hurt more. And they're using things like addictions and distraction and numbing, like there's a million things. They're using all these types of things to do that. So when we start looking at how a person, so when a person comes in and, you know, whatever they want to address, right, whatever mental health challenges they want to address, there's always parts uh, of themselves that are driving that behavior. And it's not an accident and it's Mm -hmm. not genetic. You know, this is all, these are all intelligent responses to the environment. So in an IFS session, we will work with those parts. And it's amazing how easy this is for people. Like people come in, like uh, they're, you know, I'm completely unfamiliar with this. I've never done this. How does this work? And then they're in there communicating with their parts, usually within a few minutes. So it really comes naturally to people once they're guided into it. And and that's part of what makes it so powerful because there's not a steep learning curve. You know, you don't have to read a book. It's just that, you know, anyone can start doing it. And before we kind of go into the process and specifically, you know, kind of talk about some of the various protectors, why is it effective? It's effective. I think when you when we look at most of therapy, so when we talk about talk therapy, it, it's what I call top down. It's cognitive, mm-hmm. it's behavioral, but trauma is all rooted in unconscious emotional processes. So when we try to work these things top down, we're working with symptoms rather than causes. And that's a big problem. So I know like the number of people I run, in, run into who have been in talk therapy for decades with no perceivable benefit. Right. But they stay in it for two reasons. One, they like their therapist. Right. And two, they think it, they'll get worse if they quit. So there's that fear of re- regressing. Right. And the reason is behaviors are symptoms of unconscious processes. Mm-hmm. Right. So the top down stuff to me is not getting at it. Whereas IFS and their IFS is not the only modality, but it's bottom up. So these parts are operating largely in the unconscious. You know, we see the effects of like an addiction and craving, but the way they're operating is, is for the most part outside of conscious awareness. And that's root cause based stuff. So we're working with the causes of all these issues rather than the symptoms. And, and that's that's huge. When we say root cause, what do we mean? 
Yeah, you know, I for the most part, to me, virtually any mental health challenge is rooted in trauma. So you can always trace it back, right? So in these, and again, usually it's some type, it's a trauma response, meaning a coping strategy and adaptation, very intelligent at the time when we were young. And then as we become adults, these things tend to outlive their usefulness, but they're still there because these parts of us get stuck in the past. So they still think we're really young in a lot of cases. So they're still doing their thing, thinking that it's necessary for survival. So that's what we're working with is why are the parts doing what they're doing? And those ones who are protecting, once we start unloading the pain from the inner children, then these symptoms are no longer necessary. The addiction is no longer necessary. The numbness is no longer necessary. And so it's not about getting rid of behaviors. It's about looking at why the behavior is occurring fixing that, so to speak, and then the behavior is no longer needed. I was thinking about when you made the comment about just the pain being so great in my own journey and experience with addiction, being in the eighth grade and having my mom take me to the hospital every week to drug test me and me trying to figure out ways that I could still get fucked up on something that wouldn't show up on a drug test. So like taking 12 Benadryl or taking Dramamine. If you take a whole bottle of Dramamine, you will trip your balls off. But like the high was so unenjoyable. It wasn't euphoric at all. But to be that young and to be miserably fucked up was way better than just being in my own skin. Right. Yeah. And that's the case for so many people. It's not like you said it perfectly. It's not about the high. You know, the example someone gives that I like a lot is that it, like if someone's a sex addict, if it were just about the sex, two sex addicts could marry each other and then they're good. But that's not it, right? It's about the search because it's a big distraction, right? It's the pursuing, the getting, right? It's so much more beyond that. Like the, if it's a drug, the effects of the drug that you're taking is not it, right? And, and it sounds like that's what you experienced. It was about getting away from what would be there otherwise. The other thing I'm wondering about is so prior to that, prior to me, using, you know, drugs and alcohol, the first, I think, manifestation of me sounding the alarm bells that like, there's something not right here in this family was developing separation anxiety. And so I'm wondering, because we have this protector, obviously, that's seeking drugs and alcohol. I'm wondering, so it started with, you know, I couldn't sleep over at other people's houses. And then I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I felt like I was going to die if I didn't sleep in my mom's bed. So I would go and switch places with my dad. And so I'm curious, like, is there a defender, a protector in that situation? How old were you? Mm, it started at like nine. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, th this, and I'll take this briefly back to the hunter gatherers, mm -hmm. right? So they co-swept with their kids till five, six, seven, until the kid really? decided. So the kid decided, I want to sleep alone. That's how we evolve. Huh. So what happens is when we force infants or toddlers to sleep separately, and we do this sleep training business where they cry themselves to sleep for a little, and that's torture, mm. right? And this is what doctors tell parents to do. Like, this is not, I'm not blaming anybody. This is what we're told to do. And so what that creates is, like, you can imagine, like, that is separation anxiety. So stuff like that gets kind of baked in to the system, and it can manifest later because those needs weren't met when you were young. Right now, later, you're still searching for that, right? And you're right, a part of you, when, because it, it has that anxiety, and we would have to talk to it to figure out exactly why. But when it has that anxiety, like I, I would imagine it takes over your system until you mm -hmm. went in there, right, and had to swap places with your dad. So yeah, there's two. Anxiety, a lot of time, it can be a protective 
response, or it can be one of the other inner children who are just, it's just pain. Mm. Right. So the anxiety is not always, and you know, sadness is in that category too, where it's not protective as much as it's just pain being triggered. Right. And then the protectors will figure out how to deal with it, like by getting you in the room at, at all costs. Is there an age where a protector would come into play? Like, could this happen when you're three years old? Like, is this always a thing or is it at a certain age we'll start to develop these coping mechanisms? Yeah. So in the IFS perspective, we're born with parts. They're totally normal. They're not created by trauma. But what happens is they take on roles as a result of our upbringing. So a lot of times the inner children who are holding pain are younger than the ones who are protecting them. But the protectors can be very young as well. I've seen three, four, five really? years old easily. Yeah. It all depends on when the trauma happens and when those coping strategies need to kick in. So yeah, it's all over the map. And what is the research on, and this is probably partially like genetic, but as far as like what like default coping mechanisms that we would go to, like what is it that it, that makes somebody be more likely to turn to, you know, drugs and alcohol versus somebody else who's just going to, you know, dissociate or go into fantasy mode? Yeah, I don't know that there is any. That's a good question because this is all, you know, genetics has been the go-to answer for everything mental health, and it still is to a large degree. And what kills me is there's no evidence for any of it when you actually look at it. And that's true for addictions, for ADHD. Like they, they have not found genes that, that determine this stuff. Now, there are genes for sensitivity. And what that means is that the more sensitive I am, the more impacted I am going to be by trauma. So the more sensitive people end up with the stronger coping strategies, right? And that, again, addiction, ADHD, like these things, because it, it just impacts us more. Right. But in terms of whether I choose an addiction or numbing or just incessant anxiety or distraction, like the yeah, others, I'm not aware of any research on that. We just work with what's present, you know, at the time when someone comes in. So let's do that. Like, let's take a hypothetical situation and walk me through somebody comes in. This is what I'm struggling with. And then how are you navigating to identify the protector and like for example like you just said i've seen them as young as three or four like how are we getting there yeah we can do that but what do you have a particular like what's the symptom do you want to just name one well we could do some shit for me okay like so one thing that i'm struggling with is like procrastination and self-sabotage as it relates to work stuff and in particular money-making stuff, like major money blocks. So procrastination, I think, is a good one. And that's something you experience regularly? Yes, sir. Yeah. You want to do a little, <laughs> yeah, do a little exercise? Okay. Yes, I'd love to. Okay. So what I'll invite you to do, if you're comfortable, is mm -hmm. kind of get comfortable and, and close your eyes. And this will help kind of redirect your focus inside. Just take a few seconds to get situated, get present, noticing the breath coming in and going out. And then when you're ready, you can bring to mind this tendency to procrastinate. Maybe think about the last time that happened, the last time you noticed it. And then as you bring that to mind, see if th that when you are, you know, as you reflect on when you're procrastinating, do a body scan and see if you can find a sensation either in or around your body where that urge to procrastinate lives. And then just see what comes up for you as you be open. And if anything else comes up for you, like you're angry that you procrastinate, then we'll go with that. But just see what's front and center for you as you bring this to mind. Like a sensation or? Yeah, it can be a body sensation. It can also just be a voice or an emotion. 
that's present. Yeah, it's, well, it's shame. It's embarrassment. Okay. Yeah. It's I can't believe I'm talking about this right while well, I'm open about everything. But like, this is something that I don't, I don't want to talk about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to ask the parts who don't want to talk about it right now. See if they're willing to give you some space right now and trust us just to get to know this one a bit who procrastinates. We're not going to make it stronger or give it more power. We just want to do a little introduction to it and see if these other ones will pull their energy back just a bit. And then if you get to a point where you're feeling curiosity or openness about the tendency to procrastinate, that's what that'll mean those parts step back for you, which is good. I mean, what I feel is it's like tension and tightness like on the tops of my arms. It's like a fleeing sense. Okay. Yeah. So is it okay to focus on that for mm -hmm. a bit, that tension, that tightness? And you can rest your attention there and then just see what you hear inside as you focus on that. Does this part right off the bat want to tell you anything about itself, communicate anything to you? I mean, like, I think it boils down to, like, if I'm doing well, if I'm succeeding, then that allows space for other people to not do well. And it's like, if I can be in that scapegoat role, if I can bring attention, like negative attention to myself, then that keeps others like safe and protected in a way. Okay. So there's two sides to that coin, right? If you do well, then others can't. Is that what I heard? Will be harmed somehow? Yeah. It's like if I have to um, like bring the focus on me, like to where I'm the problem. So then other people can't be the problem. Okay. And so if you're not procrastinating, if you're getting all these things done that you need to get done, then you're not the problem, right? And then how does that, so if you're not the problem, what, what does that say about you, right? If these other people are impacted by that what in a negative it? way, yeah. It's like my life is at risk. Like I'm not safe. I'm not loved. Okay, so there's a fear and an anxiety underneath that. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, and how does it feel to hear that from this one that? You know, I know that this is a thing. I think I'm just continue to be amazed at like, how it still is so much of a thing like this that it persists you mean yeah just like yeah. this like playing this like out this scapegoat role still even though i'm you know i'm the sober one like the attention the focus is no longer on me and yet i'm still like these parts are still very very subtle and under the surface still you know, because like what it is, it's like if I'm doing well, then that means that like my mom's not going to do well. And I am doing well in most regards, but I'm still not living in my full potential. And I do think that it's still rooted in this belief of I think part of it is if I'm a fuck up, then I'm protecting them in a way. And it's also like if I'm a fuck up, then like if I'm not, then how do I receive love from them? Gotcha. Or like yeah. the only way that I can receive like love and attention is if I'm messing up in a way. Yeah. And as you hear this stuff from the part that procrastinates, right? The, the rationale behind it, the fears underlying it. How do you, Andrea, feel towards that part of you? I feel like I feel angry. You know, I feel frustrated. I feel sad. Yeah, about the situation or towards the part? And either one's okay. I'm just, just curious. I feel really pissed off at the part. So is that part who's pissed off, willing to step aside? 
and give you a little space right now. You can just ask it because okay. we've just heard a lot of logic from the one who procrastinates about why it feels like you have to do this, right? And what the consequences would be if if it didn't do this. And so I get it. There's it. It's really frustrating. It does. It feels right. like I'm wasting my life. So if all those ones, and they don't have to, but if all those ones who are angry at the procrastination, one can just maybe put them into a little room okay. in there with a window. That's very effective. They can still watch, but we're inviting them okay. to pull their energy back from you. Which ones? The ones, uh, that the are, ones who are angry yeah, at, at the one who procrastinates. Okay. Yeah. And they may not be willing to do it right now, and that's okay. But just see if you notice a shift in terms of how you feel towards the one who is procrastinating like this. A little bit. Yeah. And how do you feel towards it or what, what's your viewpoint on it now as those ones pull a little bit of their energy back? Anything different? I mean, I understand that it feels like it's doing like what's, I know that it has my best interest at heart. Yeah. So let it know that, that you get that. That's really important for these ones to hear, you know, that acknowledgement that they've been heard and that you get it. And we're all, well, at the same time, we're acknowledging the parts who, for good reasons, feel very differently. Right? So a big part of this work is just listening to everyone in there and hearing both sides of a given what we call a polarity when parts are opposed like this. Yeah. And just letting that one know that, yeah, okay, I, I get it. I've heard your reasons and it makes sense. And while we're here, you might see if that one has anything else it wants to share with you right now in this little mini session before we have you come back. No. Yeah. So, and then to, to wrap up, you can, you might thank the ones in there, the angry ones and the procrastinating one for this little connection with you. And if it feels right, you can let them know that you'll be back. And when you're ready, you can come back with me. Oh, Carrie, this is such a universe moment. Like, oh, I've been like really the past few days. It's just like, when am I going to really break through this? Mm. Yeah. You and, know, and, I'm getting very, it's getting really old. Yeah. And you said <laughs> you it know? perfectly before. It's been there for so long. Ugh. And these things do not go away by themselves, typically, right? Because there's, and you heard some of the reasons and there's probably even more, right? But these parts feel like they have to do, as far as they're concerned, your survival is at stake because it was when you were young. You know, you talked about having, if you're not the scapegoat, you're not loved, right? I think you said that at one point. So kids figure out we're so, and this is all unconscious, but we are so intelligent at figuring out how to best attach to our parents and how to maintain it, that we will sacrifice our authenticity and we will start doing whatever our parents want us to do, whether they tell us explicitly or not, to maintain that, that attachment because we cannot survive without that attachment. So that's a little taste of what the types of things we tend to hear. And you know, it worked. You know, like this protector really... It worked at one point in time, yeah. right? But it's not been fucking working for a long ass time. <laughs> right. Okay. So we've identified this protector. And so we had this first session. And so then like when I come back in, like where are we going from here? Like what is the goal? Yeah. So we would get to know that one. So there's two things. A lot of times and you, there was a lot of anger there, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those ones need some more work first to understand what, what we're do doing. What do we call those again? Don't they have those, any? Those are other protectors. Yeah, they're just polarized. Okay. And so they're at, you know, a lot of times, you know, the protectors, they're a lot of times they're at odds on how to best protect the system. And so how are we confronting those? Like, what are we talking to them about? Well, a lot of times those ones will need to know more about what we're doing, like okay. what, what the process is, what our goal is. And then they're more likely to kind of keep their energy pulled back once they trust you. You 
yourself with a capital S, that's that's you. And when they trust me, then they'll, they'll be more willing to kind of sit on the sidelines and, and let us really interact with this, the, the target part, so to speak. And then and, when are we bringing in the inner child? Yeah. So once the target part, once there's some trust there between you and me and that one, then we'll talk to that one about the process and we'll ask that one, who are you protecting mm -hmm. in there? And it can be one, it can be multiple parts, and then you'll start seeing, you'll connect with that one. And then there's a process to witness what that one has been through. The part will share memories or emotions with you. Sometimes it's very quick, sometimes it's longer, but the, the difference in IFS, you know, we, trauma therapy used to be reliving memories and the thought was that would help. And what it ended up doing is re-traumatizing people because it wasn't done in a parts aware way. So with this, because you're in, so the other thing that I didn't mention, so IFS has this concept of self, right? So there's parts and then there's the actual us, which is the self. The, the parts a lot of times will cover up the self, like on a cloudy day, you can't see the sun, but it's still there. And so when I'm asking you, how do you feel towards the part, I'm looking for indications of self. When you're angry, that's not self. So I know those are other parts. So we're, and then as soon as those other parts clear, then there's some what we call self energy that's present. And then I know it's self interacting with the procrastinating part in this case. And so then we have self start interacting with those inner children who are very, very delicate. And so that's why it needs to be self because parts are not able to heal other parts. So when... Mm. The, the witnessing, the, the reason I brought up self is because self does not get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. It's parts who get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So when the parts are aside, whenever it's self relating to an inner child, I know that that witnessing, well, you know, it may not be pleasant, but it's not going to be overwhelming like it so often is. So that goes as long as the part wants you know, until the part says, okay, I've shared everything. You Now you understand what it's like. And then there's a process to unload the, the beliefs that that part is carrying about itself and the pain and the emotions that it's carrying that's relatively it's it's very shamanic actually in nature and it's pretty quick and then we replace those with good qualities like joy and love whatever the part wants and the effectiveness of this you know when i sit here and describe it, it it doesn't sound like much but that's where the healing is right unloading what those inner children are carrying and then bringing in these new qualities and at that point they are healed okay and we also bring them out of the past where they're stuck that's a key step too because these parts are all living in the past somewhere Usually they're stuck in scenes uh, from our childhood, right? And so bringing them here either to a real, like your house or to somewhere imaginary, as long as it's in the present, is huge for them because then they don't have to carry that fear of things happening again or, you know, whatever they're kind of going through back there. So, th so that's a very, you know, 10,000 foot view of the healing process for an inner child. And then the, at that point, the protector is like, okay, now I can take on a new role. So... Can you explain, like when we're identifying these like inner children, I mean, you, you mentioned like a scene, but typically like, what is it that we're identifying like a particular age or in a particular moment? Or could you give some examples of like one person, what, but what could be some examples of some different inner children that they have within? Yeah, it's all over the map. So normally when a connection is first made to an inner child, so, so for some people, it's very visual, most people. Some people not, but there a scene will come up in their head, and, it, and it's some kind of memory. And there's there's a place where the child is, you know, at home in the room, wherever. And there's either something that's happening, or that just happened, or that, that the child is scared is going to happen. And so that's how it initially presents. And then as the child starts walking you through the witnessing, there are other scenes and memories that pop up. The child may change locations. Sometimes even the age will change. Like and people say this all the time. Like, like we start out, the child is three. Now she's five. Interesting. 
you know, so, so we just go with whatever there, there's such an openness that's important here. Like whatever comes up, we go with, we don't question it. The, the worst thing you can do is try to analyze it rationally because this is not conscious stuff. So we, we're just very open and we go with it. So it, it's all over the place. Sometimes the child is in a place that, you know, the person doesn't even recognize, but again, we're just going with it and we're set. All right. What, what does the child need? to heal what does it want you to know about itself what it went through mm -hmm. what it's feeling now and then we go with it and then when we move them to the present the key is they're the one choosing where to go so they have the agency right where do you want to go do you want to come here with me do you want to go to a beach do you want to go to a playground whatever they want that's what we do can you talk more about what you meant by like the qualities or i don't know if you said characteristics or qualities or yeah yeah a lot so when, when we unload what we call burdens and IFS, again, the emotions and the self-beliefs, the next step of the process is to bring in the qualities that should have been there or were there in the first place until they got covered up, right? So it can be joy, love, happiness, peace. Again, we're asking the part to name and, and the parts know, okay, this is what I need. This is what I want to bring in. And so it's just a process of, okay, we've gotten rid of a bunch of stuff and now to replace it, we're bringing these things in that are positive. And that makes all the difference in the world to these parts in terms of just getting rid of what they're carrying. And, and, and then the protectors, once they see that, they say, okay, this now self is taking care of this little one, so I don't need to. And these protectors usually are very excited to give up these jobs because it's exhausting for them in there. It's very stressful. Mm -hmm. You know, they're always on alert. They're hypervigilant a lot of times. They're always monitoring for any conceivable threat in the external world. And when they can stop doing that, they're as relieved as anybody to, to mm -hmm. give that up and then start doing something more fun in there. Well, you often find that there'll be certain protectors will be playing various roles with different inner children. Yeah, sometimes they can protect more than one inner child. Absolutely. They can play different roles. I mean, normally if there's a protector, for example, who drives an addiction, normally that's the only thing it knows how to do. Their roles are usually pretty narrow because they get good at one thing and they think they have to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. There's not a big picture perspective of, oh, in this situation, I'll do this, but in this other situation, I'll adjust. If they had that perspective, we wouldn't be in a lot of this mess, right? Because they would know, they would just be able to see the impacts of their actions more. So yeah, role-wise, they tend to be pretty narrow, but they can protect multiple inner children in the same way. Now, aren't there some like common like categories of protect i mean obviously i know it's like individual but aren't there some there's like some generic like names for some of them right yeah there's two categories there are basically there's proactive and reactive right so the proactive ones are called managers they're the ones that are usually running the show day to day all right they make sure you get the work on time that you were here for this podcast and so it's not all bad like the intent i don't want to make it sound like everything parts do is bad but they get extreme when they're traumatized, right? So they're the proactive day-to-day, -day, watching out for threats, you know, driving anxiety in some cases. The other ones, the reactive ones are called firefighters. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that, so the proactive ones are trying to prevent on a moment-by-moment -moment basis us getting triggered, mm -hmm. right? The reactive ones are coming in after we've been triggered. And the reason they're called firefighters is because like a big fire hose, they're just trying to put out all the flames and they don't care if they destroy the house right? They just got to get the fire out. So that those are your addictions, your compulsions, right? Things that we do when we get triggered or when an emotion starts coming up, we, anything we do to immediately try to get rid of it, that's a reactive firefighter behavior. So those, those are the two. And so for like, in my situation, that would kind of be a manager is the one that we, huh? And I'm wondering like where a firefighter comes into play with that. Well, you have an addiction history, right? So that would be an example of one. Now, for procrastination, it, it's probably a manager. We don't know for sure. 
there, there's not always for a given issue. Usually it's one or the other. A lot of times what happens is they'll be polarized. So when a firefighter comes in, like with an addiction, for mm-hmm. example, the managers then come in to shame the firefighter, which then triggers the inner children, which then triggers the firefighter again, which then triggers the manager. So there's this triangle effect with these behaviors that is so, so common. And it, it just, it's a loop. It, it's just the three types of parts. And if that doesn't make sense, because I said it fast, let me know and I'll do it again. No, I, I, yeah, yeah, 100%. They all feed off each other. And so that's the dynamic that when we go inside, we got to, we, we have to break that. Do you have a particular person that you were like a, a profound experience where you were in there kind of facilitating this, where you were just like, holy shit. Yeah, all the time. Give me a good yeah. one. Yeah. What, what do I even think of? There's, I think depression is a big one, right? Because I've, when, when people are severely depressed, they can't get out of bed. Right. Mm-hmm. It's so debilitating for days and days or weeks at a time. And then I had one recently where as soon as we got to know the part who was driving that behavior and she heard from it why it was doing that. And it had a very good reason. Again, this is not random. Like there's an intelligence here. It's afraid if she goes out into the world, she's going to get hurt worse. So the best thing for her is to stay inside. So mm. how to do that? I'll make it so you can't get out of bed. Right. So that you don't go out in the world where you're vulnerable. And so just in one session, not that the depression is cured in one session, but her being aware that that's being driven by a part that loves her more than anything in the world and is being protective of her, which is the opposite of how we normally think of things like depression, right? We want to get rid of it. We hate it, right? Mm-hmm. And that, of course, you know, we react that way. But the just shame it, the shame. Yeah. And those are other parts, right? So as soon as the other parts hear that too, then they relax too. Because mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I'm still not thrilled with this one, but now I... It has the same goal as me. It's trying to protect the system. So now I can lighten up and not react to it so much. Or And her dynamic was I get depressed and then, I, and then she drinks to get rid of the depression. Right. So those two, is back and forth, back and forth. As soon as they get to know each other, that lightens up. And then you can do the healing work with them. And, and so this, I, I started with her maybe six months ago, and it's a night and day difference right now. You know, those two things are gone. Like those parts are healed. Like, and now there's other stuff, you know, that you start finding. But it's just amazing because the first step with that, really wants the self-compassion kicks in and that's immediate even that right away is a game changer and that's really what enables you to then subsequently go in because you can't heal if the parts are all hating each other it's just it's just too much chaos so as soon as you get a little dose of self-compassion in there then everything shifts yeah that makes me think like for myself like this is something that i'm intellectually i've known this about myself i don't think i've shown that part the compassion that it deserves and I think it's the um, not giving it the space to really, it's almost like, okay, get over it. It's kind of like what I hate when people do like, oh, your childhood stuff will get over it. I feel like that's maybe the attitude that I've been showing this part. Right. Like I'm not really, okay, well, we're sober now. Like, you know, this isn't the way that it is. Let's go. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so, I mean, I'm with you. Like, it's so common. I just want to get rid of it. Go away. Maybe if I ignore it it'll go away. Maybe if I distract myself, it'll go away. But the key is not to, like, we're not forcing self-compassion, right? So if I tell someone, be self-compassionate, that's, it's ridiculous, right? It's like telling someone who's an addict to stop using, like, we know that doesn't work. But once we get to know the parts who are not self-compassionate, then we can see it. Like, and as soon as they'll agree to back off a little bit and and trust the process, the self-compassion then arises naturally because Mm -hmm. it's always there. Again, it's the sun that's covered up by the clouds. Right. So we're not rather than one of the things Dick, Dick Schwartz says, who found that IFS that I love is this. This is not a therapy. This is not a, a method of addition. We're not adding skills or self-compassion or behaviors on top of what's there. 
we're actually doing it by subtraction. We're getting the parts who are angry at each other to step aside, and then what's already there can come up. So it's yeah. a constraint release type of model. Once the clouds are out of the way, then that self-compassion just happens. What is the backstory to him to, like founding this model? About how great family therapy is for bulimia, and, and it didn't work. And rather than doing what most people do, which is just pretend that it worked and keep on going, he actually did something crazy and started listening to his clients. And he asked them, why, why do you keep doing this? And they started telling him about parts, you know, in, in different words sometimes, but they started telling him, oh, there's this, you know, that triangle dynamic that I described. They would describe, oh, I overeat, then I shame myself, and then I get depressed, so, so I overeat, right? There's the three. And so then he just went with it. Like he had an open mind. He wasn't hamstrung by all these mainstream psychology theories about why, you know, behavioralism and all that stuff that was popular at the time. So he went with an open mind and learned from his clients. And it really is amazing that, you know, this was in the 80s. So 40 years later, here we are. Yeah, so it's interesting that you say it's about bulimics. And it makes me think about the ACE study, which was like founded from the obesity clinic. Have you ever heard the story, you know, Mark Bolin? Do you know who he it is? Does not ring a bell, no. So he's like the intergenerational trauma guy inherited trauma. He wrote a book called It Didn't Start With You. It's oh, yeah. And so he he talks about like his kind of like aha of this was he was working with a girl. She was a teenager and she was a horrible cutter and she would cut herself so deep that she would almost die. And one day he was with her and he gave her like a pen. He goes, I want you to tell me what goes through your head right before you're about to cut yourself. And it was, I don't deserve to live. And he goes to her, well, what in your life have you experienced that would make you feel that way? And there isn't anything. And so then eventually it keeps working with her. And at some point he's like, tell me about your grandparents. And then he, she tells him about how his dad, I don't know if it was his mom's side or dad's side, but grandma was driving drunk. Grandpa was in the passenger seat, get into a car accident. Grandfather flies through the windshield and is lacerated to death. Hmm. And the grandma stays alive. And so she's cutting herself and then saying, I don't deserve to live. Right. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. And so in IFS, we have this concept of legacy burdens, which come down exactly like that. And, it, you know, there's some epigenetic components, but I think it goes beyond that in terms, you know, we're just scientifically, it just doesn't, you know, some things defy explanation. And I think that's okay. But mm -hmm. absolutely, we'll find parts within people who say exactly that. You know, when we ask them to do the witnessing, they'll, people will start seeing ancestors sometimes who they've never even met. You know, great, great, wow. great grandparents, like it goes back so, so far. And again, as long as you go with it and you don't try to rationally analyze it, it, it works wonders. And do you find like once you've kind of worked through a particular issue in a particular part, are there experiences where this stuff will pop back up and we have to check back in? Or what have you seen as far as that? The protocol in IFS is for the next three or four weeks to do a daily check-in because it's a major shift for a part. Like everything's different at that point and then once what we find is that after that period the part essentially reintegrates itself into the system and you almost like you don't even notice it anymore it's a part of you but it's not so separate you know it's this integrative approach right now things can come back up if there's more to unburden in some cases or there's more to witness like if you didn't get it all sometimes a part will revert back and you have to go back to it and say okay what did we miss you know what do you want to show me but that that's the exception rather than the rule normally if self is there and present You'll get it all the first time. And then what happens is, so what these parts are doing, because they're stuck in the past, is they're, they're getting triggered by the present, but they're reacting to the past. Once you unload that baggage, 
there's nothing in the past to react to anymore. But you still, for example, can get angry about the present. Like, the, you know, none of this, we're not all Buddhas walking around after this process. We're right? not? The, oh, okay. Got to do it like that. But the difference is you're angry about the present and there's not all this additional anger from the past, you know, causing you to overreact and, and things like that. It's a much more in the present type of response. And that makes all the difference because normally when we're triggered by something, there it's 98% about the past. We're just not aware of it. So that's the piece that we're working on with this. And then we can just be more in the present moment after that. I didn't get to read the whole thing, but I saw your one article that I thought was really interesting on, let's talk about the D and complex PTSD. You want to talk about that some? Yeah. There's a lot of pathologizing, some explicit, some implicit that goes on in mental health and it's getting better. You know, I think we've turned the corner on that, but you know, if you look at the DSM, everything's a disorder, right? And when you just by calling it a disorder, the assumption is, oh, it's biological. Mm -hmm. And then the other assumption is, oh, we need medications because we can't do anything about our biology, right? So when we call things disorders, like what, even in addiction, right? Like the way we explore it with IFS and the way Gabor explores this stuff is let's ask what's right about it, not what's wrong mm-hmm. about it. We know what's wrong. Like you don't have to be, you know, what's right. What does it do for you? That's good, right? What pain is it keeping away that would overwhelm you if you didn't do it? right? How does it help you focus in, in some cases where you wouldn't otherwise be able to function if you weren't you know, doing whatever you're doing? So that's, again, honoring the intelligence of these coping strategies and why they came. As soon as you start asking why, you'll get to these answers. So at that point, calling it a, a disorder, it doesn't work for me, right? So that article about CPTSD was exactly that. Okay, let's look at what disorder typically means and rather than pathologizing it, and because the other thing is, if I have a disorder, then I want to get rid of it. And so now we're fighting against ourselves, and we're basically putting the, our internal system at war with itself at that point. So let's ask why, let's understand. And then, as I said before, the self-compassion will then arise naturally. And then mm-hmm. we can figure out what needs done to change. What do these parts need from us so that they don't feel like they have to do this anymore? Rather than saying, oh, you're disordered, stop it which is what we normally do. So that's the difference. Well, my problem is more therapists have no idea what complex trauma even is. Or, I mean, I'd be okay with disorder if like we could just have some more mental health professionals like actually know what complex PTSD is. Right. Yeah. Well, it's not in the DSM. I mean, that's the big problem. You know, most people are trained on that and that's all they know. And anything Mm -hmm. else is like, eh, you know, I can't, there's no medication for it in the DSM. So it doesn't exist. I made a post because there was a guy in, in my community and he shared that basically his therapist suggested that he needs to find someone who specializes in trauma because she doesn't feel like she has the adequate training and experience to be able to help him. And that made him feel like he is super fucked up, you mm-hmm. know. But I think to me what it like boils down to is, first of all, like amazing that this therapist even was at least had the awareness to even know that and also like was humble enough to say that because I think a lot wouldn't. But the problem is, is for so many adult children and what is so common, what I hear all the time is that we sit in therapy for years and I'm sure you see this too, where therapists are not able to identify that this is complex trauma. Yeah, and that's the top down, right? There, and there's, it, there's, yeah, there's no, it infuriates yeah. me. Yeah, there's no attention on the why. Like what we tend to ask is how do I get rid of X, Y, Z? Not why is X, Y, Z happening? And that's when you end up trying to overlay better behaviors 
on top of all this mess underneath, right? That again was very, so, so you're right when, you know, if someone's never heard of trauma or they have heard of it, but just the really extreme stuff. Yeah. Big T trauma. Mm-hmm. And you tell them they have trauma. Like there's a phrasing, like you got to be really careful about how you weigh that out in a way that, that doesn't, where you're not implicitly pathologizing the person. And, you know, so I say things like what I said before about how it's a spectrum. We're all on it. It's the big stuff. It's the little stuff. A lot of times it's what did not happen rather than what did happen. And everyone's got it. You know, there's not you and then all the rest of us who are normal. Like it's literally, it's everyone. And this culture is traumatizing. So you cannot avoid it. And it's just a question of where on the spectrum you are. But, but that's part of the problem with pathologizing everything is that then when you tell someone they have XYZ, there's a shaming component internally to them. It's like, oh no, I'm screwed up. Right. And that's part of what we're slowly getting away from, but it's, it's going to take some time. Well, for me, it was like, by the time I figure I'm like, finally, like, I just thought I was unfixable. Like, I'll take <laughs> complex PTSD all day long. Nice. <laughs> you know, it was like so relieving. Oh, there's a name for this. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple things. One, have you had any experience in working with people struggling with substance abuse to where they have tried, you know, 12 step programs or they've been trying to get sober forever and have had no luck and have you've been able to help them with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's the same thing where, where 12 steps, it, I mean, there's some good, there's some things oh, about it I like. If it's not trauma informed, which it's usually not, mm-hmm. then you're not getting to the root. Of it, and a lot of times, what happens with people who like for AA, they'll they may stop drinking, but another addiction is going to come up in its place. So then they develop an eating disorder, for example, mm-hmm. because the pain that like what's driving it has not been addressed. So yeah, I think for a, a lot of people, that's you know only marginally effective. And as soon as we start taking a look at the parts involved and asking why and being curious, then that that's when the shifts occur. You know, it's so interesting when I think about my journey. It, that addiction protector really came in to protect that separation anxiety. It really, like the codependency, like that was really what it was protecting. And so then when I got sober, it's like that was no longer there. And so then experiencing that feeling whenever I was in a relationship, that was the exact feeling that the drugs and alcohol was trying to prevent. So then what happened is then slowly in each relationship, that pain got more and more severe, you know, because it was like each experience was layering on top of each other to where I get to the point where I'm literally wanting to kill myself after dating somebody for three weeks and they ghost me. Right. But that's really what it was. It was like, that's what my addiction, that's what it was protecting. Like it was trying to, that fear, that that core guttural separation anxiety, core wound is what it was trying to numb out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very well described. And that's what happens. Not that pain is there and it gets worse and worse until eventually another part comes in and says, oh, what we're going to, let's talk suicide, right? Because this is so bad. That's the ultimate firefighter is the suicide part. And sometimes in an ironic way, it's helpful to people to know that's an option, like that they have that out if they need it, right? But it's still, it's a part that is trying to protect you in the ultimate way. And that's last resort, right? So when we get rid of sometimes the other coping strategy, that one tends to come up because now we don't have anything to manage day to day, the pain that's there. The other thing I was thinking about is mostly, do you find, I would think by the time that people are coming to you, these are people that are not 
new to therapy, new to getting help. I would think that typically these are people who have tried other modalities, have some awareness, some education of what's going on. I mean, you're not going to just like find a random person who's like never been to a therapist, just like knocking on your door and asking for help. Yeah, 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 totally right. Most of them have been in, you know, whether it's talk therapy or some other type of approach. Again, it, it can range from decades to, you know, just a few years or whatever. But, but yeah, that's definitely true. And that's where you get the stories of what hasn't worked. And, and you know, it, it all fits in with what you and I talked about earlier, but it, you do, it's something you hear over and over again. And what do you think is like from what you've seen, what resistance or what is it at play to where people aren't able to effectively do this process? The IFS process? Yeah. You know, sometimes there are parts who, of someone who don't want to be in therapy. You know, that happens where they are just unwilling for whatever reason to cooperate and meet the self and, you know, back off in, in certain cases so that the self can meet other parts. That's relatively rare, but there is the occasional person like that. Uh, but I think for the most part, there's, like you said, by the time people discover something like IFS, they've tried other things, it hasn't worked. So there's usually, a, there are parts in there who are driving them to, to try IFS, which is good. So you, you right away, you have some allies in there or they wouldn't be in front of you. And then it's a case of if other ones, you know, with IFS, one of the common parts is this isn't real. This is made up, you know, so the rational parts, right, which is totally understandable that, you know, I have those, we all have those. And so as long as those ones are willing to trust the process to a degree, then that's when the magic happens. But sometimes they're really intense and they just won't do it. How has this impacted your role as a parent? Yeah, huge. You know, fortunately, and not that this was my plan, it just kind of worked out this way. I waited until I was older to have, so my daughter's five, almost six. And thank goodness I'd already read all the hunter-gatherer stuff before that. So I had the foundation, right, of what we can call attachment parenting or whatever we want to call it. So the part stuff just on top of that is, you know, she's five, so she's not, you know, the parts are there, but they kind of, they tend to take some time to start showing themselves, like, you know, externally. So it's not that I'm sitting there looking for her parts and stuff, but just noticing like when she's upset about something, it's like, okay, just having that compassion for whatever part of her is upset, even if it doesn't seem like a big deal to me, like what I think is irrelevant, right? It's a big deal to her. Mm. So just honoring, okay, there's a reason why, you know, like all the emotions are valid. And as a parent, one of my beliefs is we have to allow our kids to feel everything, right? Because as soon as we try to shut something down, they get the message that emotion is not welcome. So, and that's where this, okay, as soon as I recognize it's a part of her feeling that way for a good reason, then I'm less likely to say, to, to say, stop it or to, to say, cheer up when she's upset, right? It, it's much more likely to allow what's there. But I think the even more important than that is my own parts being aware of what's going on inside me when I have that urge to, you know, if she's upset to try to cheer her up right away. What is that part? What, what's up with that? What am I worried about? What's up with that? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that kind of self-awareness when parenting is huge and is always a, a work in progress. You ever seen that Keenan skit on SNL? What's up with that? No. That's one of my fans. Okay, I'll have to look that up. That, that's um, the question. Yeah, what, what up yeah. with that? Oh, what's the other modality? Something with compassion in it that you Yeah, compassion inquiry. That's the approach Gabor teaches. Okay, oh yeah, 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 yeah. got it. Yeah, I think I am in the belief that I think all everything is just trauma-based. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hate to make blanket statements, but I'm with you. Like anything repetitive or extreme, like when we react to the present in a way that later we realize, well, why did I do, why did I react that way? Like it's always baggage from yeah. the past. And it just, again, it explains so much about everything we witness about ourselves and each other. So um, that, that's what drew me to this. Yeah, it's fascinating. 
if someone wanted to learn more about like IFS, like where do you suggest they start? Yeah, there's a lot. So I have an intro on my website, which might be helpful. The, the books on IFS are amazing. Like they've really, you know, Dick Schwartz has written a bunch and a bunch of other senior trainers of his have written a bunch, but the one, No Bad Parts is a good yeah, intro. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great place to start. There are IFS meditations in there where he guides you to go inside and discover some parts mm-hmm. that are present for you at that moment that are really helpful. So that's a great one. I know what I wanted to ask you, because earlier when you mentioned, I'm not saying that we say I, we were talking about the parts and I'm not saying that we not stop saying like I and oh, right, right. myself. What are your thoughts on DID? DID, yeah. So in the IFS context, DID is just a more extreme, again, the parts are always there for all of us, but in DID, they're more extreme, like they don't know each other in a lot of cases because they've been split that much more because the trauma is that much more severe. So, you know, in mainstream circles, DID is, oh, the parts were created by trauma and only people with DID have parts. And that's not how we look at it in IFS. We just say that's a more extreme manifestation of what we're born with. And yeah, the work there is slower, right? Because you have to introduce parts to each other and get them used to, like, there's a reason why they're all split that way and isolated. And it's a lengthy process to kind of walk that back and get them integrated. So, yeah. Have you seen, like, on TikTok, like, have you heard about this, like, where, you know... You have these people that are claiming they have DID, but they're taking it to like the extreme, right? Mm. No, I haven't. Like to where they're like literally on screen and then like switching into a different character, like in the moment. Mm. And yeah, it's a little bit scary. Yeah. It's so interesting with TikTok. I mean, I, Gen Z is wonderful. They're more trauma aware than anybody. And I love it. Yeah, I'm not. There can, there can be ramifications. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because yeah. I want to be, I want attention. So I'm going to act like yeah. I have on a multiple personality disorder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a tough one. I know. Well, what else? Where can people find you? What else do you want to share? This has been such a soul. This has really filled my soul. This has been a really good conversation. Uh, for thank me. you really so much. Good. Yeah. It's been wonderful. So happy to meet you. You'll have links somewhere, I guess, but everywhere. The yeah. So they can find my website there and my Instagram where I try to post things that are. And then do you just work individually with people? Yeah. One-on-one. So the first session's free and there's a consult before that, that I do just to get to know somebody you can book that on the site. And then, yeah, I'm out there. So thank you so, so much. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey. As always, I know you did. And as always, if you didn't, seek help immediately. Thank you so much to Terry. That was so awesome. I also would like to say that his voice is like so relaxing. I just, he has a, he needs to have his own podcast because um really like really liking the sound of your voice terry so go check out the show notes for links to his shit he also is a writer he's written several blog posts on um the complex ptsd foundation i can't i think that's what it's called um so he he has some good articles on there as well uh i definitely want to talk more about ifs and i would love to hear from y'all regarding ifs if you guys have had positive experiences I'd also love to hear from you guys regarding what therapy modalities have been most effective for y'all. Would love to hear that. Um, What else is going on in my life? Nothing. I'm just hoping that I don't drink in the next few hours. I'm not going to. Don't worry. And yeah, I'm hoping I'm going to have a nice day tomorrow. I think I'm going to go kayaking and um, have a nice sushi dinner. And again, 15 years. What the fuck what the fuck it's a long time 
kind of. Just such a baby. There's maybe a few of you listening that knew me then. Val, are you listening? I actually just saw my very first sponsor last week when I was at a meeting. I hadn't seen her in a very long time. Uh, so that's it, folks. Oh, I saw that somebody, another person made a, re- a review about me eating on the pod. So I'm really hoping that it's just the one episode that I ate on. I think I only ate on the one episode. I apologize if there's other ones, but I'm hoping it was just that one episode that I ate on. And then I'm hoping that they're going to hear the following episode where I then apologize for the eating. And then hopefully they'll change their four-star review to a five-star review. So um, I apologize again. And please, if you ever have feedback on the podcast, please know that you can reach out to me directly DM, email, very open to um, to to feedback unless you're going to like personally attack me and then I will not respond and I won't comment on it. But then maybe like six months down the road, I'll like comment on it at the end or something. Um, <laughs> okay. I'll see you next week for another fucking amazing episode of A Judge Hat. It's going to be super, 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 super excited to be on here. It's going to be a good day, I promise. Just let it all go